0: Welcome to Ratchet Book Club where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. Y'all who have been here for a while. Remember when I used to fuck up that part? Member? Member? No? Probably because it was nearly a year ago that I started doing this shit. I know this book, y'all might be doing this out of order and shit. And you don't know and you like, damn, this nigga been doing this for a year. It's the first book I've been reading. It's just crazy. I feel like I'm close to this nigga. Nah. Back in the day, I could not say where we read. I couldn't say it. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club. I'm scared that if I keep fucking up on purpose, I'm going to start fucking up for real, so I better keep going, but welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek, 916-633-1537. Somebody sent me a voicemail, and yes, I do get voicemails. I'm not just saying that number for shits and giggles. Somebody sent me a voicemail. No, I don't play them on the show because I also don't read the reviews on this show because, but I appreciate them. Somebody sent me a voicemail and was like, yo, I never knew why you were saying this number. And then one day I dialed it and I was like, oh, <laughs> shout out to that, dude. I appreciate it. I appreciate the reviews, the whole nine yards. Um, Yeah. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook, Ratchet and Ratchet on gmail.com. You know what it is. You know what it isn't. Let's get this motherfucking started. Chapter three. The whir of the ceiling fan was the only sound that could be heard as Bernice Jackson filled out the intake paperwork in front of her. Office hours had come and gone, yet there she sat, under strict orders to process those two kids tonight. She looked through a one-way window, observing the young men who sat in the room. They had no idea they were being watched, their movements and every word recorded for later review. Bernice had been working for Florida Social Services for 20 years, and she had never had so much urgency placed on her shoulders regarding the handling of incoming children. The U.S. attorney himself was headed all the way to her office to personally oversee the placement of these two boys. She couldn't help but wonder who they were and why they garnered so much interest. She sighed in frustration. She wasn't particularly happy that she was working overtime. Why the fuck not? Nigga, what? What? Overtime? Overtime? Nigga, I will take it. You know how much money you get through? Oh, my God. I don't know. Maybe she's broke. Maybe she wanted them broke ass hoes. But where I'm from, nigga, you offer me overtime. How much am I getting? How much are you giving? And how much can I milk off of it? Because when they offer me overtime, nigga, I still ain't going to do shit. But I ain't going to do shit for a time and a half. And I'm going to try not to do shit so then I can push it into the weekend so then I can get double time and a half. And let that shit fall on a holiday. Nigga, let it rain. (laughs) Get mad because there's overtime. Better get the fuck out of my face. I can pay your whole house note off of overtime. I play it right. Why the fuck you think cops be beating up black folks so much? Overtime them niggas pull us over and then they act like they got paperwork they pull us over right before they shift ends and then pull us over and be like yo i gotta take you in and i gotta do paperwork and then they make the paperwork takes like five hours overtime my nigga that's why you're sitting there holding yourself for so goddamn long i don't know i just made that up but it sounded accurate as fuck didn't it you'd be like yeah yeah they did have debo in there that shit was crazy it was quite odd that someone from such a high level was getting involved at all. The sound of the electric door's opening let her know that the man of the hour had finally arrived. She stood from her desk as two suits entered the room. That's them? The entitlement of white privilege entered the room as a prestigious man didn't even bother with the formalities of introductions before getting down to business. Yes, that's Monroe Diamond II and Carter Jones Jr. Carter! Carter Jones Jr. Did anybody ever see that cartoon that was like you missed you blinked and you missed it? James Bond Jr. James Bond Jr. faces come around the world. The best part of it was the intro song. Bond. James Bond Jr. Somebody really came up with that shit. Meanwhile, I come up with ideas every fucking day and can't get a deal for shit. Huh. Ages. Monroe is 12 and Carter is 8. If I may ask, sir, you may not, the U.S. attorney said. He turned and looked at the security cameras. Turn those off. Sir, I can lose my job for that. Every second that these kids are here needs to be recorded. I can't just shut it off, Bernice responded. This is above your pay grade. Shut the cameras off, please. Bernice reluctantly followed the instructions. What the hell does he want with these kids? Who are they? She thought. She had immediately assumed her son's of drug-addicted parents—perhaps an abusive mother or a deadbeat father. She had seen so many different scenarios of neglect in her line of work, but none of her previous cases had received such high-ranking attention. Where's the paperwork? The U.S. attorney didn't even look at her as he spoke; his eyes remained glued on the window as he watched them intently. She hurriedly retrieved their folders and handed them over. He flipped through the pages briefly scanning the documents before he turned to her and said, There are one of two things that could happen to you tonight. You can forget what you're about to see, and I'll call in a personal favor to promote you. Or, you could take the moral road and be fired right now on the spot. The choice is yours. Nigga, you ain't gotta say shit twice. Look, so here's what I'm gonna do, right? I'm gonna turn my head, and I'm gonna cover my eyes like this is old school hide-and-go-seek, and and I'm gonna count to a hundred. All right, and I'm gonna plug my 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 thumbs in my ears, so my hand is gonna be covering my eyes, and my thumb is gonna be plugging my ears. And then y'all do whatever the fuck y'all want, within reason, you know. Don't do nothing nasty with them kids. I will fuck you up. But other than that, can I can I can I say where I want to be promoted to? Can I say where I want to be promoted to? I want my boss's job. That motherfucker needs to be fired. Can I? Okay, okay, okay. Bernice felt cornered, and her stomach sank because she wasn't sure she wanted to be involved in whatever plot was about to unfold. They're only kids, she whispered. They're pawns, and they're going to help me catch the king, he answered before walking into the room. Oh, so he wants Carter. Okay, that's all you had to say. Like, nigga, I'm here to get young Carter. That's all you had to say. People know who the fuck young Carter is. Mo's face twisted in mistrust as soon as he laid eyes on the man in the stiff suit. Hello Monroe, hello Carter, I'm a friend of your family. CJ looked at Moe for confirmation and Moe simply shook his head, letting CJ know that this man was not an ally of theirs. Moe sniffed out the hidden agenda instantly and his guard was up. I'm sorry about what happened to your father Monroe, I'm sorry you had to see that, I know that must have been hard. The US Attorney was trying the sympathetic route first, but there was nothing he could say to Moe and CJ to get them on his side. Don't talk about my dad, Mo said in a low voice. Talk about my mom. Like, can anybody say, you know, I'm sorry your mom was chopped up and put in the trunk of the car? Are we ever going to mention Lena again? Like, did Lena not even happen? And where the fuck is uh, Robin? Seriously, Robin died off camera like a motherfucker and I didn't even know that shit was possible in a book. Okay. He could feel the dull ache that formed in his chest. Every time he thought about the bullets that had ripped through his father, it made his heart feel tender. He didn't know that it was sadness that gripped him, and he was uncomfortable with the vulnerability that came along with the memories. I know it's hard for you to speak about. No child deserves to see their parent. I told you not to talk about my dad, Mo said as he looked the grown man square in the eye. The look on his face was filled with hurt and fury, but still the attorney pressed. You boys belong with family. I need you to help me find your father, Carter. The attorney said, hoping to get better luck with CJ. If we could just contact him, he can come and take you both home. You don't have to stay here. If we can locate a relative, you can go home. The smile plastered on his face didn't quite reach his eyes as he looked back and forth between the boys. Monroe avoided the man's intense stare as he flipped his hoodie over his head and crossed his arms. what do you say, Carter? The man pushed. I ain't got nothing to say either. CJ answered. The U.S. attorney nodded, losing patience. Okay, you little shit. Like, really? Who calls somebody? That is such a white thing to say. Like, not even joking. And yeah, I know a black person wrote this, but that's because they also know that is such a white thing to say. So well done you, Ashley and Jaquavis. It's the first time I fucking agree with you. That is a white-ass term. If it's not a white-ass term, get me video of somebody other than a white person saying it. Give me a video of a black person saying it where they're not making fun of a white person saying it. Because if I say little shits, that means I went to the bathroom and I'm constipated and I tried. But all I could take was a little shit. Look here, you little shits. You little shits. What the fuck? This is malarkey, you little shits. The fuck? Little shits. <laughs> okay, you little shits. He grabbed Mo around his bicep, squeezing so tightly that it felt like it would snap. Ow, man, let me go, Mo shouted as he tried to pull away, kicking and pushing the man to no avail. Get off him, C.D. was out of his seat in the blink of an eye, throwing futile punches. If one fought, they both fought. That was how they were raised. Protecting one another was always their first instinct, even in an unwinnable situation. It was what made them close. They are more like brothers and cousins, and to be sitting here in this office with this strange man, who was desperate to take down their family, put them on the defense. They are being ripped apart, from the very top of the food chain down to the small fish. They are throwing kicks and fists trying to defend not only themselves, but their family. Their frustrations amounted, and this was the result. "'Can I get some help in here?' the attorney shouted as he pushed C.J. with full force. C.J. lost his balance and fell head first into the metal table, The metal corner connected with his temple, and a loud crack echoed throughout the door. Suddenly, everything in his line of sight turned white. You motherfuckers. Blood spewed, and CJ reached for his head as he cringed in pain. He felt wetness, blood, he assumed, as it seeped through his fingers, and he blinked repeatedly, trying to make his surroundings appear before his eyes again. I can't see. I can't see you, sons of- Oh my god. You goobers. You motherfucking goobers. Frantically, the sudden blindness scaring him. It was like someone had shined a light directly in his face. He stumbled, dazed from the blow, as dizziness disoriented him. His heart was racing so fast, adrenaline coursing through him as he struggled to stand to his feet. He was confused, and it felt like bolts of lightning were going off inside of his head. He fell back against the wall. I can't. F- f- f-. CJ's speech became incoherent as his body shuddered violently. He was seizing from the impact of the blow. So what's y'all's rule in these books? Because I'm really just frustrated right now. And I'm damn near, I, I know, I know. I have kids who are going through some shit. And so this this would hit me regardless. Do y'all Is y'all's rule women, women and children only? Like everybody else's rule is no women, no children. Y'all's like, fuck that, women and children only. Because the only bad shit that happens in these books happens to the women and children. I'm deadly serious. Even when Zaire shot himself in the head because he's a snitch, he didn't die. Y'all got this eight-year-old. Something good better happen in the next fucking paragraph. That's all I'm saying. This shit better be a dream sequence like y'all did in that whole fucking second book. What'd you do to him? What'd you do to my cousin, man? Mo shouted in anger as he struggled against the attorney's grip. Help him. What'd you do? Bernice rushed in and hurried over to CJ. The sight of him convulsing uncontrollably terrified her. Call 911, she screamed urgently as she kneeled over his body. She looked back over her shoulder and noticed the U.S. attorney's hesitation. If you don't want to explain this boy's death, I advise you to pick up the phone and call for help now. Still, he took his time, knowing that an explanation would be required to excuse what had happened. Sir, Bernice insisted, this boy's going to die in here and I'm going to lose my job, she thought. She pulled out her cell phone and dialed for help. They were fighting, and while trying to separate them, he fell and hit his head on the table, the attorney said. You got it? He stared intently at Bernice, who nodded her head while looking on in fear at CJ. You're lying. You did this. You pushed him, Moe shouted defensively. The U.S. attorney bent Moe's arm behind his back, twisting it so far that it felt like it would snap. Bernice watched in horror. She didn't want to lose her job trying to save two boys she didn't know, but the entire situation felt wrong. Moe stretched his arm across the desk and grabbed the first thing he could get his hand on. When his hand wrapped around the pencil, he stabbed backwards, hitting the U.S. attorney directly in the eye. Ah! Moe was tackled to the ground with force, and he grimaced as the knee was put in his back. Suddenly, there was chaos in the room as paramedics and police officers entered moments later. CJ! Mo could barely breathe. The weight from the grown man holding him down was constricting his lungs from filling with air. He felt the pinch of the metal cuffs so as they shackled him before pulling him off the floor. The U.S. Attorney was being loaded onto a stretcher as another team of paramedics worked on CJ. Is he okay? Mo cried, his heart filled with worry. They were the last two standing, and if something happened to CJ, Mo would be alone and navigate through the world. You need to worry about yourself right now. You're in a lot of trouble, son, the officer said. Mo craned his neck, struggling to see CJ as the police escorted him out of the room. He could feel in his soul that this would be the last time he would lay eyes on his family, and the hurt he felt was tremendous. As they stuffed him into the back of the squad car, he felt caged, like an animal that just wanted to roam free. First, they had separated the men from the women and their families, and then they had divided the women from their children. Now they were tearing the children from one another. The government was breaking them down to a point past repair. Things couldn't get any worse. And as the car pulled away, Mo dropped his head. His tears of fear fell silently down his cheeks. Shout, shout, let it all out. I stabbed the DA cause he knocked my cousin out. He's blind. He's bleeding out too. He's blind. He had a seizure I didn't know what to do I stabbed the DA I would've stabbed that woman too They saying dumb lines About breaking up the family and shit But didn't mention what the dope game had to do with it. What the dope game had to do with it. Shout, shout, let it all out. I need my mom and I've gone without her love. Cause she's in a trunk chopped up. That's all I got. I mean, I got more. I'm really fucking talented, but I'm on a time schedule. By the way, in case you didn't get the joke, tears for fears. I know some black folks don't listen to them, so I'm helping y'all out, but they're really fucking dope. Waking up had never been so hard. As CJ lay in the hospital bed, he was conscious beneath the surface. He just couldn't quite get to the light. He lay still, hearing the comings and goings around him as he desperately willed himself to move. The social worker had come to check on his state. Someone from the U.S. Attorney's Office had stopped in to remind the social worker what the story was, and even the police had shown up to take an official report. He heard it all, and after three days of trying with all his might, he finally opened his eyes. There was instant pain, and he touched the side of his head, grimacing as he pressed lightly on the bandages. Hey, CJ. Welcome back, buddy. My name is Miss Bernice. The social worker, CJ thought, recognizing her voice. He kept reminding himself that she wasn't his friend. She was on the side of the state, the person who had intentions of splitting up him and Mo. Don't trust her, he thought. Bernice sat in a chair in the corner of the room. He didn't understand her worried expression. She wasn't his family. She didn't know him. Why was she even still there? Where's Mo? It was a jingling question. Is he hurt too? Mo's being sent to juvenile detention, CJ. He's in some trouble. You won't be able to see him for a while, Bernice responded. And what about me, CJ said. Am I going there too? CJ wanted the answer to be yes. They had faced worse than lockup together. As long as he was with his older cousin, he didn't care where he ended up. It was a separation that gave him anxiety. No, CJ, you aren't. You're going home. CJ looked at her in confusion. There was no one home to receive him. Death and destruction had surrounded him. Was this lady playing some type of cruel joke? I don't have a home anymore. Hopefully one day you'll see this new place as your home, Bernice replied. I don't feel comfortable leaving you in the custody of the state. I could lose my job for this, CJ. But I also would not be working in your best interest if I took you back to social services. After seeing how the U.S. attorney behaved, I fear for your safety. Nigga, then tell the cops. Tell somebody what he did to CJ. Tell them. Tell them Mo didn't do it. Mo was defending himself because they literally had a knee in his back and they were trying to kill him. (sighs) CJ was quiet, partly because he didn't know what to say. Who was this lady? Making him her problem? Why was she taking the responsibility to care for him? Nobody was this nice, and those who were usually had an angle. He couldn't figure out hers, but knew in due time it would reveal itself. To manipulate a child against their parent is unfair. Whatever your family did had nothing to do with you. I'm sorry this all happened to you, Bernice said. The entire situation made CJ uncomfortable. She's just trying to get me to talk about my family. She's the good cop, CJ thought as he remained silent. He remembered his mother telling him that it was easier to get your way using sugar than shit. This is the sugar, he thought. The niggas ate. This is like when I'm on Twitter and I see folks all about... My 8 year old came up to me today and said Mother The problem with this society is that we do not come together To look at people the same way We look at everybody as they're different We all just came together under one accord And realized we were all Oh that's too many words for Twitter Like "Like, are you lying 8 year olds don't talk like that I I know 8 year olds I've had 8 year olds 8 year olds say because When there's nothing else behind it that fits the because Okay 8 year olds they are eight-year-olds are second graders. This is the same eight-year-old that took a bag of drugs to school like three months prior and a gun. Miss me. Most fate is out of my hands. she continued. His file has been transferred to juvenile court where he will face charges of assault. That revelation got his attention and CJ's breath caught in his throat, choking him as emotion built in his chest. He was a younger cousin. He was used to following, not leading. Even under extreme duress, CJ could maintain his courage when Mo was at his side. But here, in this hospital room with this lady laying it on thick, he felt exposed. Does he also still feel blind? Like, we haven't talked about that yet. This lady was making the decisions, and he had to obey, despite the warning his gut was telling him that she was leading him to the slaughter. Your future hasn't been written yet, and so I'll do all I can to make sure that the U.S. attorney never gets his hands on you. Once you're discharged, you'll come home with me. This is a good thing. I think you'll be really comfortable there. She'll mark up his file as a runaway. No one would think to question it. In fact, no one would even care. Foster children ran away all the time, and CJ would just be another one lost. He had no family on the outside to come around asking questions. It was just CJ. He was the last one standing, so it was easy to make him slip through the cracks and disappear without anyone taking notice. I'm going to get the doctor, Bernice said as she stood and walked out of the room. CJ laid his head on the pillow, overwhelmed. Even when Baraka had taken him, he had never been so completely isolated. Mo was always there, always reminding him that although they were far away from home, he would always watch his back. He would rather be locked up in juvenile with Mo than live in some stranger's house. Trust was simply not extended to any outsider. Bernice could smile and make promises of security all day, but there was a void behind her eyes. It was as if the sentiments she expressed were shallow, and C.J. could see right through her. Normally, when a person was too friendly, it meant they really weren't friendly at all. And C.J. was filled with dread as he pondered the rough days to come. Or, you know, normally when people are nice, it means you're fucking eight. You're eight. Like, you're not a 17-year-old. they treat you differently if you were a 17-year-old who had just got knocked out and got your head bouncing off a desk. But now, no. Chapter 4. Carter and Inari sat next to one another as they rode in a golf cart that was steered by one of the servants from the emperor's mansion. The property had a full 18-hole golf course, full of nothing but healthy green grass and sand bunkers. They were followed by a few more carts with the rest of the team in them as they traveled to the rear of the property, where there was nothing but woods and bushes. "'Where are we going?' Anari asked. She looked at the forest and then back at Carter. "'Your guess is as good as mine,' he answered nonchalantly as he shrugged his shoulders." Ghost was in the front of all the carts, driving his own as they came to a complete stop just before the green grass ended and the wooded area began. Ghost stepped off his cart, wearing another well-fitted Italian suit. He then waited for everyone to get off the carts and signaled for the servants to head back to the house before he began to address his team. I know what it looks like. Like a bunch of woods, right? Ghost said as he showed his signature smile. He then buttoned his suit jacket and nodded in the direction of the forest. Come on, let me show you what's really going on. Ghost headed towards the woods and eventually onto a dirt trail that led into the abyss of the dark shaded area. Everyone looked at one another, trying to make sense of their walking into the woods, but everyone shrugged their shoulders and followed him into the unknown. Carter was the youngest of the bunch and seemingly the bravest because he was right behind ghosts as their journey began. They all followed carefully and the sound of twigs breaking and leaves being ruffled filled the air. The deeper they went, it seemed like the darker it got. The tall trees and an abundance of leaves seemed to block out the sunlight, only allowing small beams of light to break through the cracks and crevices of mother nature. After about five minutes of walking and no one saying a word, Brick was the first to talk. Yo, homie, how long we have till we get there, scuffing up my loafers and shit? he said arrogantly as he shook his head in disappointment. It's just ahead. Up here, Ghost said as he pointed while steadily making his way up the path. Everyone's eyes shot forward and a huge brick building sat oddly in the middle of the woods. It seemed totally out of place and random. However, they all knew that it was their destination. Yeah, because he just said so. It was unlike any other building they had ever seen. Just a brick building with a steel door entrance. The outside of it was filled with shrubs, trees, and dirt. There was absolutely no landscaping whatsoever, and that was by design. This location was meant to be top secret and off the radar. I feel like, you know what, they've been doing good so far, so I'm not going to doubt it. The intention was to not attract anyone that wasn't involved with the doings going on inside. They finally got to the front door, and it was a 10-foot mass of steel and had no door handles or peepholes. There was just a keypad with a red backlight. Ghost stepped in front of the keypad and commenced typing in a sequence of numbers that seemed to take him forever to do. Finally, the keyboard's backlight turned green and Ghost stepped back and still with his hands crossed in front of himself. A single beep sounded and almost instantly the steel doors parted, opening into the world of tomorrow. As soon as they stepped into the cold building, the sounds of their footsteps echoed throughout. They all looked around in confusion, wondering why he had brought them to a big, empty warehouse. I know what you guys are thinking. Why is it so cold? Why is it empty, right? Go said slyly as he led the way through the building. He clasped his hands together and turned on the spurs of his heels so he was facing the group. This is where the magic happens. We've gathered the top scientists in the country and invited them to be a part of this creation. After years of trial and error, we have finally created the perfect drug. As I said before, it's a super brain drug that gives you a rush cocaine, and as it fades, a feeling of euphoria, which helps relaxation and your libido. At its final stage, it works the strong melatonin that puts you to sleep like a baby. This drug totally regulates your life and will give you the most productive day while allowing you to sleep like a baby to do it all over again the next day. This is literally the perfect drug. No other drug can give you all three of these phases with a single pill. Ladies and gentlemen, we have discovered a rare flower that produces this phenomenal substance. It's the slice of the devil's pie without the downfall. The sight of the multi-million dollar facility was mind-blowing to them all. The frosted glass doors and walls were impeccable. The place looked like a brand new hospital without the patients. It smelled so clean and fresh, and the silence was relaxing. Only the sound of the gushing air conditioning unit hummed throughout the corridor. The bright lights almost strained their eyes. Everything was so bright and transparent. It almost felt as if they had stepped into the future. The immaculate, well-lit labs have five rows of tables all filled with test tubes, boiling pots, and other substances they had no idea what they were. Various scientists of Indian descent were scattered throughout the spacious room at the steel tables creating, testing, observing the creation of the drug. Ghost motioned for a scientist to come over, and a male that looked to be in his late 40s came over, wearing a full doctor's robe and a face mask. He approached the team and pulled down his mask, displaying his cleanly shaved face. Hello, all. Hello, Ghost, he said as he nodded at them. My name is Dr. Ishban. We've been waiting on your arrival for some time now. We're at the final stages of a batch now. Allow me to give you guys a tour and show you what we've been working on. Shall we? he asked as he began to stroll down the aisles where scientists were working diligently on each side. The entire team watched and listened closely as Dr. Ishbon explained the process of turning the leaves into the paste, then powder form, and finally into a pill. He led them into the back of the facility where a large greenhouse was. They entered the all-glass room and a beautiful roll of reddish flowers bloomed and gave the air a sweet smell, like jasmine. The Sea of Red was an amazing sight. The large flower bloomed widely and had traces of purple near the center, giving it an exotic appearance. They walked and listened closely as Dr. Ishbon explained the life cycle of the flower, all the way until its final stage. Carter and Anari walked side by side, both listening very closely while the others asked questions and randomly talked amongst one another. At the end of the tour, they were led into a back room. A projector and screen were at the head of the room, and the seats and tables resembled a college classroom. Have a seat, everyone, Ghost said as he walked to the front of the room where a podium sat. He then lifted the laptop that was placed on the podium and turned it on. Everyone took a seat, and all eyes were on Ghost as he used the remote control to dim the lights. The projector began, and he started the briefing. The first thing that appeared on the screen was the map of the United States, and some sections were colored in red and some in orange. This is the United States map, and as you can see, some areas are tinted in red. These places are the launching points of the distribution of this new drug. We have about 18 months before the FDA approves this, and it will be open season to any pharmacy in the country. During this 18-month span, we plan to move $200 million worth before the millionaire investors in the medicine world even get wind of it. As you can see, we're starting where you guys have done well. These targeted areas are your stomping grounds. Each one of you will have a region. The Detroit flint chicago south florida and dmv areas ghost used a red beam to highlight each area of the map as he spoke you guys are proven that you know how to distribute and control these areas and that's why you guys were hand selected by my partners each of you stands to make at least 25 million over this span just enough for each one of you to retire and ride into the sunset unscathed ghost explained this sounds good but what about the law what if we get caught? Do you guys step forward and get us out of the jam? You mentioned political connections at the Vatican. Would these connections and resources be utilized? Brick asks. He dug deeper into different scenarios. Unfortunately, we theoretically don't exist. If any of you get caught or jammed by any authorities, we'll have no affiliation with you whatsoever. At that point, our relationship will be instantly terminated. This is the risk that you take to be a part of this thing of ours. The bright side is that this game has a due date. 18 months is all that is needed to complete our goal. After that, the corporate world will have this drug in it's open season for knockoffs and copycats. We have the source, and in return, we have no competition, Ghost explained. What are the blue areas? Anari asked, she frowned in puzzlement. Good question. These are the cold zones. These are the areas where law enforcement has special drug units focused specifically on stopping narcotics. We've highlighted these areas, so it cuts the risk of getting heat from the feds nearly in half. We studied each area throughout the states and narrowed it down to five cities that would be lucrative and the least likely to get attention from the feds, Ghost replied. I see, I see, Anari said as she nodded her head, understanding the infrastructure of the elaborate operation. This is absolutely genius, Millie said aloud as she also nodded her head while rubbing her hands together. <coughs> Okay, so I got a question. Y'all niggas is over here happy about $25 million. Weren't you saying that Inari was worth a billion in cash, like straight paper, and Carter is like worth? Tons like he built a fucking casino and all this kind of stuff. Like, aren't these niggas worth money money? Why do they care about 25 million? I mean, I'd care about 25 million if I had 25 million already. I'd still want 25 million more. But I mean, it isn't like they're hurting for 25 million, is what I'm saying. Except for Inari, because she ain't really rich. She could see the money piling up in her mind already. Millie, not Anari. I'm back to the story now. It was just the lick that she had been praying for. Everyone had been waiting for an opportunity like this. This was something the drug dealers never had. An exit plan. This was their one-way ticket to paradise. And it was in the near future. Um, I'd like to mention that Carter had a ticket to paradise. And it was one way. And if he had stayed on that one way, his whole family would still be safe. Except for Mecca. But the rest of them niggas, yeah, they'd all be good. And for some reason, which they still haven't explained, the nigga came back the very next week. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Carter, on the other hand, remained quiet and listened closely. He had no choice but to participate, knowing this would be the only chance to ever get his wife and son back. I'm wondering how he's going to get his son back because she wrote it up as if he was a runaway. So that should be interesting. He was going for broke. I mean, if. Mia Moore could find Carter in the middle of nowhere because she's Mia Moore. We know he's going to find CJ. He had made all the money in the world, more than he ever could spend, so money was no longer his motivation. He honestly just wanted to live a normal life with his family. He had been involved with the cartel for years, and he was tired. He was drained, and the weight on his shoulders was that of the world. He could see the excitement in everyone's eyes, and he couldn't share their sentiments because his heart ached for his family. It was so bad that he literally felt pain in his chest thinking about them. He was a man broken, and it was starting to weigh on him physically. He clenched his chest, feeling a slight pain in his left side. He knew it was from his previous injury when he got shot. His body wasn't the same as it used to be, and he never felt full strength. Inari noticed Carter wince and leaned over and whispered to him. "'Yo, you good?' she asked with genuine concern. "'Yeah, I'm good. It's just heartburn,' he said to avoid strong weakness." She nodded and focused back on Ghost as he began to discuss the route and pipeline of the drugs. Carter zoned out, only thinking about his love. However, the plan was underway. There would be the new regime in connection to the states for the new drug. They concluded their meeting with everything they needed to know to take over. After a few hours of breaking down on logistics, pickup points, and syndicate, they were ready to dismiss for the day. One more thing. Cell phones and laptops are in each of your rooms, Ghost said as he smiled widely. They all laughed, feeling like they were at a strict camp and finally got a little bit of freedom. We had to make sure you guys are fully on board before we could trust you. But I think it's safe to say that we're all business partners and hopefully we'll grow to be great friends, Ghost said. Over the next two weeks, we'll go over and over the plan so when you return to the States, you guys can hit the ground running. We've already set up dummy transportation businesses to cater the drug directly to your hub in your particular city. You guys have every base covered, Briggs said, as he was thoroughly impressed. As I said before, we've been working on this operation for years and have thought about every possible scenario to make this successful. This is a win-win for everybody, Ghost said. He then raised his hands and clapped loudly twice. And almost instantly, the door opened, and two waiters came in with trays with flute glasses on them. I believe it's time for a celebration, Ghost said as he grabbed a flute and raised it in the air. A toast, he said, to the beginning of something great. Everyone else followed suit and joined in on the toast. To the future, Ghost said. To the future, everyone repeated in unison as the sound of glasses clinking echoed throughout the room. Carter and Inari locked eyes as they toasted, and it was as if they shared a connection. It wasn't a sexual energy, but more of a real connection. They both knew something was unusual about the entire situation. However, it seemed as if they were playing chess and withholding their moves from the rest of the team. They were on the same wavelength and wanted to know more about this grand scheme. Okay. Nine one six six three three one five three seven. Ratchet and Ratchet Gmail dot com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Lee review on Spotify. Uh, Lee review on Pod Chaser. Copy and paste that in the Apple Podcast. Copy and paste that in the Good Pods app. Uh, you can donate to the show on patreon.com slash single simulcast or on buymeacoffee.com slash SScast or on the Good Pods app. You can go to the tip jar. Uh, thank you to everybody who's been listening. I greatly do appreciate y'all. Um, yeah. Y'all be good. I'ma hold you later. Peace.